This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And we're at NC State again. Woo! It's good to be back. We are here as part of my own personal uh, media writing class this time. And so we are giving a demonstration of uh, what it's like to do a podcast. Chris was so gracious as to give us a lecture on how to do the technical stuff, which is great because he still has to lecture me most of the time. (laughs) It's true. So... Uh, today, we are going to be talking about civil forfeiture, which, if you know about civil forfeiture, you probably just like clenched up inside. Rage. Um, and if you don't, we hope that you feel that way by the end of this episode. <laughs> Rage. So, we're going to be talking not just about civil forfeiture, but about what you can actually do about it. And you might be thinking, but I'm just one person. And that's the that's point. That's what the episode is We're going to be doing, talking about how you can fix that. So... As we've talked about all season, we have this notion of our three axes, whether things in structure and agency are positive or negative in the ways they affect people, whether an institution is visible or invisible in the kinds of effects it has on people and how it sits in society, and whether it's legal or social. In this case, civil forfeiture, we think, is clearly in the negative category. And if you're not persuaded of that yet, that's just because you haven't heard about civil forfeiture. You'll be convinced in a short short order, I think. It's basically invisible, though, and that's one of the most important points about it, as you'll see as we go through the episode. And it's certainly a structure that exists in legal terms, primarily. There's there's a little bit of social structure to it, but it's primarily enforced legally. And thinking about that last axis and our PhD-level sub-axis, it sits somewhere in the middle-ish on the organized-unorganized category in the legal sphere. But as we'll talk about, it's more on the organized side of it. And that's an important thing to keep in mind as we talk about these axes. They're not binary switches, they're axes. So whenever we say this is legal, what we really mean is this is more on the legal side of it. There's always some of both in in nearly every situation. So Stephen, why don't you make us all very, very angry by descri- describing civil forfeiture to people who don't know about it. Uh, with, with great sadness, but also somewhat glee, I will do so. <laughs> um, so civil forfeiture is the idea that if you are accused of a crime, whether or not you are ever actually indicted or arrested, if you are accused of a crime, the police department can take your stuff, hold it indefinitely, and or never give it back to you, regardless of whether you're ever actually indicted or guilty. Even if you're totally innocent and can prove that in court. And in court is a particularly important part because civil forfeiture is not a misnomer. The police and the laws that govern the police have moved the idea of forfeiture out of the criminal system and into the civil system. This is a particular purpose behind this is because if it's in the criminal system, if the government accuses you of a crime, you have right to counsel. If you are civilly accused, sued, whatever it is, you don't have a right to counsel. And since civil forfeiture mostly happens to people who are poor and who are underrepresented by legal structures, they don't have a lot of money to get a lawyer for themselves. Now, another thing that they don't know is that if you get a lawyer for yourself and you win a civil forfeiture case, which is pretty easy to do if you're innocent, because like, (laughs) give me back my stuff stuff is now is a pretty easy (laughs) argument. The government then does have to pay for your lawyer, but this is not something that a lot of people know. I didn't know this specific fact until I started researching it. 
So there's a lot of red tape that goes in, but it's mostly hidden because most people who are victims of civil forfeiture are people who cannot raise a stink about it. Police departments are smart enough to know that if they started accusing people uh, who were in the middle class or above of, and taking their stuff in civil forfeiture, they would get civil forfeiture <laughs> shut down very, very fast. That's um, how it works. And civil forfeiture is not just like a minor problem. The New York Police Department, which the NYPD is one of the largest in America, did this 500,000 times in a year. That's their own estimate that they do it 500,000 times in a year, which means they probably do it a lot more than that. They had, as of 2012 or 2013, something like $69 million in assets seized this way. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of people's stuff. And this is seizing people's cars, seizing people's cell phones, seizing people's any cash that's in their car. If it's searched, oh, you happen to have you know, $5,000 of cash because you were traveling across country or whatever else. We suspected you of having cocaine in your car. That money is now ours. And you're not getting it back. you're not getting it back. And if that sounds crazy to you, it should sound crazy to you because it's It's crazy. Crazy. It is a clear and just on-the-face prima facie violation of unreasonable searches and seizures in the Fourth Amendment. Right. There's just no question that this is... A, a ridiculous violation of constitutional rights. Yeah. Now, you may wonder, how did such a stupid thing ever come to be in America? Well, there is a reason. Um, as we've mentioned before, there is this is reasonable, but it is in no way justifiable. Right. There is a reason this happened. And it is, in Prohibition, this was one of the ways that the U.S. government defeated bootleggers. Yep. Like, we can't accuse you of actually selling the alcohol that you made, but that looks like a still, and I think we're going to take it from you. So it was a way that they tried to enforce prohibition, which we should do a whole episode on prohibition sometime (laughs) because that would be really fascinating, and we would have opinions. We did. It was our marijuana episode. Well, that's... (laughs) Lols. So it largely disappeared after prohibition, and then it reappeared in the War on Drugs in the 80s, which actually was our marijuana episode. (laughs) Um, And... Since then, um, because it was originally used for drug kingpins, like, we can't really say that you sold drugs in this vehicle, but it smells like drugs. And And you have $20,000 in hard cash. So we're going to take the cash in the car. Right. And this was a way that they tried to defeat the drug trade. As you, dear listener, know from life and or this podcast, (laughs) that hasn't gone very well. And so... From um, life and or this podcast. Yeah, you know... (laughs) That should be the title of this episode. (laughs) From Life and or this podcast. Um, It hasn't gone very well. And so civil forfeiture has largely skated under the radar after those high-profile incidents in the 80s. Right. Um, Largely identified with Reagan's war on drugs. Right. Because the incidents which are high-profile, which involve it, tend to be the kind where they're busting large drug kingpins. Many people in the public's perception of this has been... Either neutral or somewhat positive. Like, yeah, yeah that's yeah. a way to get those drug lords. Do it, like, yeah. That's a way to get Al Capone. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because most people don't realize that, of course, the main way this is used is not actually busting drug kingpins. It's taking money from poor people who don't know that they can afford to fight back. Right. The ACLU reports that uh, most civil forfeiture is under $500, uh, which means that if there's $69 million uh, yeah. worth of civilly forfeited assets, that's a whole... Just in New York City. That's a whole lot of civil forfeiture going on. Yeah. And so um, we particularly think this is a problem of ethics because... 
I'm not even going to explain it further. But Don't steal. Don't steal. <laughs> even if you're a public institution. Maybe especially if you're a public institution. You know, the least of these are the most important to protect. You right. should not be abusing them. Like, this is the book of Ezekiel. Like... <laughs> You know, large portions of, of ethics, whether they are Christian or anything, are basically like, don't abuse poor people. So on a basic level, we think this is a horrible idea because it violates basically every ethical premise that we can imagine. <laughs> taking advantage of people, taking advantage of poor people, taking advantage of people that don't have the power, abusing power. Like, we could go on. This is bad. However, what's interesting to us is the relationship of the negative and the invisible and the legal. So this is largely invisible. Right. P- most people don't know about this. Most people are not never going to be in a situation where they have their assets civilly forfeited. So as a result, it, because it's obviously negative, because it's invisible, there's not any motion here. There, nothing changes. There's never anything where something pushes it in any direction. You end up with a situation where... Despite this being financially a pretty large deal and being the kind of thing that affects a pretty substantial number of people in the country, if you think about that $69 million, even if that's over a decade, at under $500 increments, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of interactions between individuals and police having their stuff taken from them. And as Stephen said on the ethical front, even if they were criminals— it's still unethical to just take people's stuff and not give it back, uh, especially if it's not related to the crime in question. You might be able to justify seizing money fr- that was directly tied to the sale of drugs, but give the guy's cell phone back. Come on, man. And so you end up in a situation where because it's invisible, you have this massive negative structural impact on large communities, but because those communities are poor, because in many cases they're minorities, and because policing is a contentious issue in the country at large right now in general, and people therefore have strong, often pro or anti-police sentiment entirely separate from this issue, when the New York Commissioner of Police shows up and says, look, it would just put way too much of a burden on the police department to fix this, there are a fair number of people who just, at a sort of gut response, support the police on that point, not because they have a well-considered reason for supporting the existence of civil forfeiture and the way that it's employed, but because it's part of this broad structural issue, this broad systemic and cultural issue where people have gut responses to things that aren't well-considered. So you have an invisible phenomenon that is then tied in with these other structural systemic things going on in our society, and Even when people do become aware of it then, John Oliver did a big segment on this a few years ago trying to get people angry. Not that many people became aware of it. It stayed relatively invisible. But even when it does become visible, even when people do start to try to agitate about it, a lot of times, unfortunately, that doesn't actually go anywhere because... Well, if I go try to make a stink about civil forfeiture, and even if we, with our massive podcast listenership of 200 people, massive, so big, go make as big a stink about it as we can on this episode, maybe a few more people come away better informed about this. But this raises an important question. Many times in social activism, we think that the most important thing to do is, quote, be informed, unquote. But a fair number of people are informed about this issue, and... An increasing number of people are informed about the issue, and yet in a lot of places, literally nothing is changing, even as people become aware of it, even as people become angry about it. And this raises the question, okay, let's assume that part of the problem is the invisibility of this issue, of this structural pressure. 
Does merely making it more visible fix the problem? And we think the answer is not quite. And we think that's partially because it's a legal problem. Mm -hmm. So as we've talked about before, social problems or social organization can shift pretty rapidly if people decide this is dumb. That was our (laughs) Facebook episode. Like, people have decided to stop being on Facebook, therefore more people are not on Facebook. Like, this is a, a social movement in this direction. However, if a bunch of people decide, you know, we don't think civil forfeiture is a good idea, we're going to stop it. Like, they don't physically have the social organization tools to be able to stop it. Like, that's right. a barrier of the legal system. You can't just walk up to the police and say, guys, I don't like this thing, you need to stop it. It might be great in a fair number of areas if we could do that. It would be really <laughs> rad, actually. Um, uh, that would but be, that's not how it works. That's, uh, yeah, especially at a police level, which is sort of a step down from the direct legal processes that many people do have access to mm-hmm. um, through voting, through lobbying, through uh, various forms of activism. Right. And so it's particularly important to not get trapped in the, but I'm just one person, how can I possibly do anything? It is an important note to say that, yes, you are just one person <laughs> and you probably can't do anything on your own. Right. So in situations like this, it is expressly and specifically important that you don't just be one person. Right. You need to clone yourself you, and make hundreds of copies of yourself, like in the prestige. That's when... exactly what you need to do. <laughs> All right, so this has been the episode of Winning Slowly. <laughs> no, no. What, cloning yourself is not the answer. Not, also, not it's not answer. probably possible. Well, yeah, and even if it was, like, you would have to wait for those clones to grow up. So, Well, I mean, in um, the prestige, it was insta-cloning. Yeah, but that's... <laughs> this, is, this is what Steven <laughs> has to put up with. <laughs> Dear Patreon listeners, we love you. Um, but... It is important to become more than one person. You have to gather more people. You have to become part of something to do uh, anything that makes a a change in this vein. Right. And there are lots of issues there. Like, (laughs) this is a giant ball of things that we're about to unpack a little bit. But at a base level, being informed, good. (laughs) Getting involved with things, better. Right. The idea here is that to make a change in a legal structure of any sort, you nearly always need to be organized socially and probably also legally. And you need to have, if at all possible, high visibility for your movement to get a good good possibility of getting traction with it. You need to put together a sufficiently well-organized thing, not just a social or legal movement, but a well-organized one that you're actually able to carry the day when you have to go make either legislative or litigative moves Mm -hmm. when you're either changing the law or suing someone or both Mm -hmm. to try to accomplish a change. That's not something that any individual can do. So it has to be a larger, more organized thing, whether social or legal, or in this case, probably both. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing you need to have in mind when dealing with structural change in general. If there is a structural pressure that's enforced legally, it's almost never going to be able to be moved without creating structural pressure in the opposite direction. And in this case, that's going to look like both social and legal organized pressure in what we think is a positive direction, a.k.a. not doing civil forfeiture anymore. Right. So even if you think of people like Aaron Brockovich, who famously are the face of a particular issue, um, they are supported by a large group of people surrounding them. Now, they may have been the first person that kicked that off, pushed it forward, gathered people, gathered resources, 
But without the gathered people and the gathered resources, that wasn't going to go anywhere. Right. So the next thing is you're like, okay, but what am I going to do if I get like 10 people together? We're not going to take down civil forfeiture <laughs> on our own. That's totally true. You may not take down civil forfeiture anywhere um, across the entire country, but every city has a police department mm-hmm. or at least has a governing police department, whether it's not actually in that city. And so every police department, except those that explicitly have laws that say they cannot do civil forfeiture, have the ability and probably the practice of doing some amount of civil forfeiture, um, just by dint of the fact that this is part of the way that policing works at the moment. So you can find out information on civil forfeiture um, as an individual, as a group of people, and you can work against that in your own local area. You can can make alliances with people who have experienced civil forfeiture. You Mm -hmm. can um, be an advocate for people who have been through and are going through the process. You can work with your local legislature or your local elected representatives or unelected representatives to work against these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So at a local level, you can do things. That's explicitly why we have a local state federal system is that at a local level you can respond to things that you don't have the ability to respond to at a federal level um, if you live in Garner, North Carolina. Right. And as part of that then, being able to bring pressure to bear at a local level may allow you to make local changes. And if enough cities make local changes, that adds up. As we talked about, sometimes large social and in this case, sometimes even large legal changes aren't the product of one sweeping reform. Rather, they're sometimes the product of many small reforms that incrementally combine to make for a radically different system. And sometimes large national reforms become possible, at least in a mental sense, become conceivable Mm -hmm. only as a function of lots of small local changes adding up that shift the culture. In the same way that a bunch of people saying, I'm not going to be on Facebook, allows other people to know it is now okay to not be on Facebook. If you have dozens and dozens and dozens of municipalities across the country saying, civil forfeiture is wicked and we will not tolerate it, if you want to engage in forfeiture for prosecuting criminals, it will happen in a criminal court and you'd better be able to prove it. Criminal forfeiture is different than civil forfeiture. You have to prove it. Yes. If a bunch of municipalities did that, if it became the norm, the cities that weren't doing that would suddenly have a bad reputation. They would have social pressure coming Mm -hmm. against them. And that in turn would empower state level and even national level legislative action in response because it wouldn't be butting up against the same kind of entrenched pressure that's there now without support. Local changes can make bigger differences than we think, especially in aggregate. Right. And that will take a long time. Mm-hmm. This that, is called winning slowly for a reason. This is called winning slowly for a reason. And this is by no means an overnight thing. Jenny and Tyler's Faint Not that opens the episode is explicitly about this issue. Like, you have to persist in doing good, and it will not be easy. And a lot of times, it won't be fun. And that is... <laughs> True story. That is unpleasant. But you have to persist. And that is the way that things change. And so, it's it's deeply important to realize that you know, if you get involved in something of a legal variety, if you want to do social change of a legal structure, that's going to be a long, long haul. And it's going to involve a lot more people than you. And you've got to get those people on board. And it is important to note that the other 
end of the um, I'm just one person spectrum is the, there are so many bad things in the world. I can't handle them all. Yeah. I can't do it. I want to solve everything, which we totally get that. But you're one person, right. you're finite. As part of that, then our responsibility as people who want to see other human beings flourish, who want to see injustices ended, etc., and recognizing that we're not going to accomplish that ultimately. We're not utopians, but we can nonetheless work for real eliminations of injustice. Ending racial slavery in the United States was a big deal. If we could end sex trafficking or even just massively radically diminish sex trafficking around the world, that would be incredible. Yeah. If we could diminish radically or better yet, eliminate civil forfeiture here in the United States, that would be a big win. Mm -hmm. And it would be the kind of small but real change that would empower a lot of poor communities and especially minority communities not to have to deal with some of the crap they have to deal with. Mm -hmm. That would be a mm -hmm. real change. You can't solve all of those problems. You can't fix world hunger by yourself. And you can't focus on every injustice in the world because there are too many. But we do have a responsibility, and our responsibility is the sharpest, closest to us to engage. Our responsibility then, we think, is to pick some issues and to think about your time and use it responsibly. And given that, to say, look, maybe I can't give 17 hours every week to this cause, but maybe I can give two hours every other week to this cause and one hour once a month to that cause and I'll chip in a little bit of money. And hey, there's International Justice Mission literally helping rewrite laws and sometimes bust down doors and rescue little girls from sex slavery. I'm going to support them where I can. Yeah. Finding ways to do those kinds of things, picking picking the causes, and then saying, look, hey, neighbor, I can't help with this, but you and I were talking about it the other day. You should go see if you can help with that. And encouraging the people around you who may be passionate about different justice issues, about different matters of concern like this, go invest in them. And don't think, you know, I'm better than the person next to you because of the one you've picked, but just recognize that there's enough to go around for us to tackle together. Right. And if you feel... Like you don't know what you could do to help a nonprofit or a, a social organization or a community organization, just contact them. Just say, "Hey, I I <laughs> am, tell you I am a, a researcher by trade, and I don't have a lot of time to come to meetings. Is there a way I can help?" And they'd be like, "Oh my gosh, let me tell you five different ways." Um, because these types of organizations are always looking for people to help in a myriad of different ways. Having been part of a nonprofit organization that is uh, attempting to do good in the world, you, you can always find a way to use someone. Don't worry. So engage at whatever level you can. Um, being engaged in one issue and working towards, towards doing it does not eliminate your, your need to care about other issues, but it does eliminate your like guilt level at not being able to help with that issue. Like yeah. you can deeply care about something and be say like, you know, I am totally engaged over in this other area and like, I support you and I'm with you, but I just, I have no bandwidth to help with you on that. Right. And that is not a guilt inducing thing. That is the best you can do. Right. And so avoiding that sort of guilt is deeply important. Right. So avoid that guilt, and then when you face 
a negative invisible legal structure like this, or even a negative visible legal structure, which we'll talk about at other points in the epi- in the season. Yep. Go at it hard as a group. Recognize that you need visibility mm-hmm. and you need social and legal pressure and you can't mount that by yourself. So tackle it as a group and don't lose heart. Carry on. The intro music, as I mentioned, was Faint Not by Jenny and Tyler. Thank you so much for letting us use that. We're huge fans of Jenny and Tyler, and it was awesome to have their song about social justice at the front of this episode. It's true. Thanks to Andrew Fallows, Jeremy W. Sherman, and Kurt Klassen for sponsoring the show this month. If you'd like to sponsor the show, go to patreon.com slash winningslowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winningslowly. Yeah. 10% of whatever you give us goes to the Internet Archive, because as much of a mess as the Internet can be, we still love it and want to know about it in the future. That's right. As always, we do appreciate it when you share our show with friends or post about it on social media or rate and review us in iTunes or whatever other podcast app directory you might use. We also do very much enjoy hearing from you, so if you uh, have some comments, send us them on Twitter at Winning Slowly or on our Facebook page, our Facebook message, or via email at hello at winningslowly.org. As always, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. This is, do I say this is or welcome to? You, you switch it every week, basically. Do I really? Well, I don't know. <laughs> also, there are bloopers. Yes.